This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. In this episode, I welcome on Jill Grunwald, who is a holistic nutrition and hormone coach, functional medicine certified health coach, and founder of Healthful Elements. And she specializes in alopecia, Hashimoto's, adrenal dysfunction, women's health, and blood sugar imbalances, and is the author of the number one essential thyroid cookbook. Um, She's actually the co-author of that, um, which is a book about um, recipes for those thriving with hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. She's been working in this field for 17 years, and I sought her out because so many people in this last two or three years have been complaining to me about hair loss, alopecia, and other subtypes of, of hair loss, and there really wasn't anybody who was really doing a deep dive into this topic. And I came across Jill's work and saw that she is, and I wanted to get to know her, interview her. And we had just had a fabulous discussion today and we went into a number of things. The things that stood out were her emphasis on the immune system. Uh, is it, as it plays a role in alopecia. We also talked about the foundational work of reversing alopecia, such as hormone health, gut health. We talked about some of her favorite uh, treatments for alopecia that are natural supplements. And we really went into the inner workings of understanding alopecia and how it's important to address things like blood sugar, hormone health, and the immune system, and of course, gut health. I think you'll enjoy how she really is comprehensive in her approach. She has some courses available that she talks about and also has some really good educational information available for people who work with her. So without further ado, I welcome you to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Jill, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. It's a delight to have you on today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. You're welcome. I wanted to sort of get started hearing about your interesting background and what led you to being a specialist in the the area of hair loss. Um, maybe we can start with hearing your a little bit about your personal journey. Sure. So... I've had alopecia off and on for going on 40 years now. 
Um, and it started as patchy hair loss. It was alopecia areata, so I would get spots from time to time. And they would always grow back quickly, and I would go years without a spot. And then in my early 40s, things really went south, and I ended up going half bald and <laughs> wasn't seeing any progress for about two years and really dug into the root causes of alopecia because I didn't want to do corticosteroid shots and I didn't want to do a jack inhibitor or anything like that. So I, I really um, took a very academic approach to the condition and was able to turn it around and had previously in my health coaching practice primarily focused on Hashimoto's and then after this, you know, devastating condition hit me and I got my hair back, I started to become an alopecia coach. I did. I never set out to do that um, and have since then developed my reversing alopecia program. I do private individual um, coaching and support around alopecia and I also have a signature program called reversing alopecia that's an annual course that I teach. Um, I just wrapped up co-teaching so this year I co-taught it with my partner Dr. Elizabeth Naylor. We just finished year five of the program and we are right now developing and soon to be launching our reversing alopecia um, hybrid program and I can tell you more about that if you if you're if you want to know what that looks like. Yeah I'm sure our listeners will want to hear about that and I do as well. Um, yeah, tell, tell us more about that. Okay, so just a brief history on the prior reversing alopecia course, which it was a live course that I that I taught. And, and again, this was year five. Uh, it was a 10-part course. Um, and we are turning it into, we're not going to stop doing the individual coaching. We'll, we'll, we'll always do that. But we're turning that live program into a hybrid program where it's all the same material. We're not holding back on any of the information or any of the learnings. Um, and people can jump in at any time. It's not like we launch at certain times of the year. You can jump in at any time. It's the same material. And we have the you know, modules, the different components of the triggers for alopecia and the causes for alopecia that will be taught via video along with you know resources and handouts and guides to help people along the journey and we will do a weekly live coaching call and it's a 12-month program it's a 12-month high support program with um weekly coaching calls weekly group coaching calls awesome. that sounds amazing um yeah, so it'll be interesting to hear more about your personal philosophy today when we talk and your approaches and the things that you've learned. Um, so just to kind of frame this conversation, I think a lot of people who are listening to this probably know the devastating nature of having alopecia, but possibly their, their loved ones or their friends or maybe even their healthcare providers don't understand the how devastating it is um maybe you could help share that as you know some people will say like this is a vanity issue and 
and when when it's much more than that and not that so can you share with us like so like a framework of like how devastating it is yes it is completely devastating and i really appreciate your your framing of this question yes there is a vanity component to it it's a visible manifestation of a deep imbalance but there's so much more going on underneath the surface um but yes because it is a visible manifestation of you know, basically immune dysregulation. It's not all about the, the, the immune system. We can talk about that. You know, there's a lot of hormones associated with alopecia, but um, it's especially devastating for women. Um, I do work with quite a few children with alopecia. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the sessions with their parents, obviously, and they're taking that information and, you know, making changes on behalf of their child. But it is devastating and um, it's a unique challenge for women because our femininity and our identity is largely tied to our hair. That's just a fact. So it's devastating from a aesthetic standpoint, but I will say also that by the time clients come to us, they're pretty um, savvy about the fact that this is an immune dysregulation issue and they don't want MOPS, multiple autoimmune syndrome. So a lot of people will say, yes, I'm devastated that I'm losing my hair or that I've completely lost my hair because I work with people on the spectrum. Um, but I don't want to develop another autoimmune condition. Yes, I want my hair back, but at the end of the day, I want to be healthy. I want to be a healthy human. I do not want lupus. I do not want, you know, Hashimoto's. I do not want, you know, MS. So a lot of people have that understanding that, you know, once one manifestation of autoimmunity sets in, you're kind of a sitting duck for other manifestations of autoimmunity. So um, it's a little bit of a double whammy. Right, because if someone hasn't previously been diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, I have autoimmunity," and it's playing out in a very visible way, it, it is a double whammy for people. It can be very devastating. Yes, thank you for sharing that, and it you know kind of helps contextualize it, and I and also think just you know it's normal and to be expected that when you're having hair loss to be deeply impacted by it. It's, you know, it's, you're, you're, you're putting yourself in the face of others all the time. And, and, uh, uh, it brings attention to you sometimes in a way that, um, can really impact you psychologically. Yes. So going into the different subtypes of hair loss, I think a lot of people, really need to learn and understand that to navigate their own solutions. Um, maybe we can talk about the different terminology that's used. You know, for example, if in medicine, if you call something alopecia, alopecia versus telogen effusia, you, you, it's a different thing. Like how do, how do you define alopecia and 
how, how can we get more specific about it? Yeah, this is such a great question. I love talking about this. So um, I have found for many years that a very common term for various patchy patterns of hair loss is alopecia areata. Even on PubMed, you know, they'll, they'll have articles on there that talk about alopecia areata, but areata is a specific pattern where people have various bald spots around their scalp. And then there's, you know, ophiasis, which I had, which is no hair above the ears wrapping around the back of the head. I also had spots up top, too. So I had areata and ophiasis. And then there's totalis, which is no hair on the scalp, and universalis, which is no hair on the body. There's also a not often talked about pattern called alopecia diffusa which is a diffuse autoimmune loss that's often labeled as telogen effluvium. I have a blog post about this, that a lot of people who get diagnosed with telogen effluvium, it may not be telogen effluvium, which is trauma or stress-related loss that should abate, right? It should last, like the loss should last about three to four months after the stressful event, and then the hair should start to return. Um, and alopecia diffusa, while it's the same visual pattern of diffuse loss, it's actually an autoimmune condition where instead of having bald spots or total baldness, you have chronic autoimmune diffuse loss. Now, I will also say chronic diffuse loss is also largely implicated with thyroid function. So, you know, there's various reasons why people can have diffuse loss, but in my work, we're always looking at the immune system anyway. If it, if if whether it's whether it's alopecia diffusa or not, <laughs> we're still working on you know healing the gut. Seventy to eighty percent of the immune system is in the gut. We're still working on other hormones to you know support follicle health and to you know balance the thyroid and the adrenals and some of the other hormones that are associated with loss. So um, I guess I have a little frustration about the terminology related to alopecia because there are specific patterns, right? And they, um, in some respects, they need to be dealt with slightly differently. Now, I will say that in most cases, and this, this, this uh, ratio that I'm getting ready to give you right now is completely made up. I made this up. <laughs> it's not scientifically substantiated, but my opinion is that 85%, roughly, of the same approach will help to slow loss, slow inordinate loss, and help people to regrow hair no matter what pattern they have. And that remaining 15% is specific to, you know, that pattern or, you know, we could even apply that ratio to autoimmunity in general, you know, whether it's lupus or scleroderma or Hashimoto's. 85% of the same approach is roughly, um, or 85% of the same strategies will work no matter what manifestation someone is expressing with. And then we target that. You know, I'd love to talk about androgenic alopecia, which is actually the most common form of hair loss. I'd love to talk about that also. Yeah. Yeah, I love that you realize the, that there's um, this these interrelating factors that are related to hair loss and to not sort of just go down one pathway with addressing hair loss based on its subtype. Um, I think that's so important. It also, I'm sure there's different 
priorities based on the different subtypes, but um, the fact that you look at all of the the different um, factors and you include them in your approaches is really great to hear. So enter energetic alopecia, I, I think it's important for us to um, discuss that um, in detail because actually it's it's was originally called androgenic alopecia, but now um, we see more appropriately like these kind of specifically referred to as female pattern hair loss and uh, then androgenic alopecia is more used in males. And uh, if you could just kind of go into the unique characteristics of female pattern hair loss, because um, I think that's mainly what most people are going to be focused on for uh, our discussion. Yeah, it is the most common pattern for sure. And um, it's more, there, there's a, there can be a genetic component no matter what manifestation of hair loss somebody has, right? If it's autoimmune patchy loss or, or alopecia diffusa, you know, there's, there's often uh, a genetic component to that. But we have this beautiful science of epigenetics that shows us that you know, our, our genes are not our destiny, right? We have up to 70% capacity to influence gene expression. Only 30% is fixed. With androgenic alopecia, um, well, first I'll talk about what makes it different visually and, and symptomatically, which is it's not patchy where people have bald spots, although people can have a very wide part. Like when you part your hair down the middle on the top, they can have a very wide um, part. So it's like a strip of baldness. Um, it's it. There's a diffuse characteristic to it, diffuse loss. Um, more thinning around the temples and above the ears. Sometimes at the crown, more loss at the crown. And frontal loss also. But I did read an article, a, a couple articles on PubMed that said female pattern loss is not typically characteristic of or it's not, it doesn't show up symptomatically as frontal loss. That's another pattern of hair loss called um, frontal alopecia. So I have worked with several clients who've had frontal loss, but it's coupled with <laughs> the diffuse loss, you know, thinning, thinning along the part, more hair loss at the temples and above the ears, um, and also miniaturization with follicle which causes thinner hair strands. So typically with the patchy patterns, people don't have miniaturization. Miniaturization is very characteristic of the androgenic pattern. Okay. Yeah, I think the learning about um, the hair loss related to the part was really a game changer clinically for me. Uh, because I was always looking for sort of the typical pictures we see in textbooks with people with PCOS or um, androgen dominance. Um, they're just kind of like a classic uh, temp temporal hair loss or like you said on the crown of the head. But um, learning recently that really looking at the the part was really game changing. I know you just mentioned that. I just maybe um, have, has that is that something that you feel is like a very important area to inspect? Um, I do, yeah. 
I do, because it's so characteristic of that pattern. But not everyone who has androgenic loss has a, a problem with their part. You can you can right. you can have hair on the top of your head, but be losing at the temple and above the ears, and just have an all-over diffuse pattern. So not everybody who has the androgenic pattern has that problem with their part. Okay. Well, so I think that was a really good overview um, of the major categories. Um, I think what I'd like to just sort of talk about next, if possible, is um, one, kind of go down the route of immune the immune system and how the immune system um, is a promoter of hair loss um, in certain scenarios and then also like the hormonal route as well so let I, I really think you know in these times the immune system is getting a lot of obvious uh, exposure for under you know our understanding and just all the different things that we've dealt with over the last two or three years. And I've seen so much more uh, complaints of hair loss over the last couple of years. Maybe you can kind of take us through uh, the basics of the immune system and how uh, in an autoimmune condition or even um, in someone who's dealing with like a viral illness that their hair might be affected. Yeah. So, um, Alopecia is thought to be autoimmune in nature. You know, that's what a lot of medical literature says. And it, I would say, you know, I, I'm not a licensed medical provider, but I would say, you know, that is true the vast majority of the time. And the cosmic joke with, with hair loss and, you know, what I'm getting ready to say doesn't apply to everyone, of course, but we don't need hair and fingernails for survival. So when there's immune dysregulation, when there's a hypervigilant overactive immune system, that's targeting, you know, like in the case of Hashimoto's, it's the thyroid. In the case of psoriasis, it's the skin. When there's this hypervigilant, overactive immune system, oftentimes the hair follicles get targeted, right? Because we don't need them for survival. So the body will delegate or distribute resources to other life-dependent systems. And again, not everyone who has autoimmunity has a hair loss issue. Um, now, the other thing is that as I said earlier, 70 to 80% of the immune system is in the gut. So a lot of doctors in the functional medicine community say that by definition, if someone has an autoimmune condition, they have some level of leaky gut or the more medical appropriate term is intestinal permeability. Well, the hair follicles are very nutrient dependent. So if there's any level of dysbiosis, then we're not gonna be absorbing the nutrition that you know really the whole body needs but the the hair follicles are very vitamin mineral you know amino acid enzyme dependent as is the thyroid as it you know again it's not exclusive to exclusively beneficial to the hair follicles but if there's any level of intestinal permeability and we're not absorbing that nutrition the hair follicles can suffer so uh you know, getting back to that concept of MOS, multiple autoimmune syndrome, um, the patchy patterns of alopecia are largely preceded for many people um, by a family history 
some member of the family having rheumatoid arthritis, celiac disease, or type 1 diabetes. And again, this doesn't apply to everyone. A lot of my clients and students have said, yep, my dad has RA, or my mom has RA, or my sister has you know, type 1 diabetes. There are often those three autoimmune conditions in the bloodline, or that person might have celiac. There's actually a strong association between celiac disease and alopecia. Um, so I believe that whether, you know, no matter what pattern someone is expressing with, they could have the androgenic pattern, right? Which is not technically classified as an autoimmune condition, but in my experience, people have had a lot of markers on their lab work of immune dysregulation, right? So sometimes it's a double whammy of some androgenic alopecia stacked on top of some alopecia diffusa, right? So we address the immune system no matter what, right? And, and given that, you know, 70 to 80% of the immune system is in the gut, we have to look at food sensitivities. We have to look at infections. You mentioned infections. Um, and that's not to say that everyone who has hair loss has an infection, but we have to peel back those layers and uncover what is really going on here because alopecia is multifactorial. I cannot stress this enough. It's never one thing, as much as I'd love for right. it to be. <laughs> it's always you know, an amalgamation of factors, but when you start peeling back those layers and working on it, you know, it's amazing what can happen, truly. Yeah. So essentially like the immune system with, let's take for example, the intestinal permeability scenario. So if you have uh, an upregulation of the immune system because the gut is leaky, then that can upregulate a certain part of your acquired immune system, which somehow affects the hair follicles. So can, have you looked at like drawing the connection, like what cytokines are involved or what, yeah. what is the, like, I mean, when people say I treat the immune system, like the, the immune system is really complicated. So how, you, you kind of, how do you know what part of the immune system to treat? Well, we have our innate immune system and then, you know, autoimmunity is sort of this, you know, immune system gone rogue. And, you know, I always tell my clients and students that inflammation is always playing a role here. And if someone's having a cytokine storm, then, you know, it's going to cause inflammation throughout the whole body, including the hair follicles, right? I mean, even, you know, um, a dysregulated blood sugar is one of the most inflammatory states for the body, you know, being on that dysglycemic sort of blood sugar bungee cord causes an extreme amount of inflammation. So oftentimes there is a great deal of inflammation in the follicles, but it's below the threshold of pain, right? People don't feel, I mean, some people do have a very um, uncomfortable scalp. There's a lot of itching, there's a lot of irritation, there's scaling and redness. You know, that's a relatively small percentage of the people that I've worked with. But there can be inflammation underneath the surface of the skin and the follicles that we don't see, right? And then when the follicles are inflamed, we lose hair, right? And then the follicles are not 
in a healthy enough state to be re-signaled for new growth. You know, that antigen phase, that, that, that growth phase doesn't get signaled because of that ongoing inflammation. So, you know, there could, there could be cytokines and also just at a very basic level, an autoimmune attack on the follicles. I hate that word attack. I don't like, I don't like to use it, you know, it, you know, people often say, you know, Hashimoto's is an autoimmune attack on the thyroid gland. Well, yeah, but <laughs> I don't like that word, but it's a similar phenomenon, you know, whether the immune system is targeting the thyroid or targeting the skin or targeting the hair follicles. And you, I'm sure you know this as a, as a medical provider is that a lot of medical researchers have spent a lot of time and money trying to uncover, well, okay, we have about 120 different manifestations of autoimmunity known in the medical literature. Why does it show up as alopecia for this person and scleroderma for that person and psoriasis for that person? Like, what are the mechanisms by which it shows up differently for different people? So, what else do I want to say yeah. about this? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so so basically, you know, from a basic perspective, um, you know, there, it's it's interesting, like a lot of my patients that I care for that have autoimmune illnesses will know a flare is about to intensify because they'll start to see their, they'll start to have more hair fall, um, especially like my mast cell activation patients will be knowing they're about to enter a masto flare um, by the quality of their hair. Um, so, you know, there's obviously some local stuff going on um, you know, as, as it's related to immune signaling. And there's been some tests, I know you and I talked a little bit about offline, that can actually look um, at what is going on on the tissue level of the scalp. Um, and I realize that's sort of a reductionist approach, but it certainly helps give information and informs us in some way. Um, do you... Can you share a little bit about like some of these tests that are out there, like the trichogram and trichoscan, those types of tests? I don't know a lot about those tests. Um, I mean, I know that they look, you know, at like skin health slash, you know, follicle health. Um, and, you know, there are tests that you can do for like the level of miniaturization. If someone has the androgenic pattern, they can actually measure the level of miniaturization, but one thing that you said just now, which is a huge contributor to alopecia, and I find that so few practitioners talk about it, is uh, mast cell activation disorder, or mast cell activation syndrome. You know, some people call it MCAS, some people call it MCAT. And the reason I bring this back up is because you can do a biopsy in the scalp to actually see the level of mast cell, you know, degranulation in the scalp. Now, some of my clients have done scalp analysis for things like yeast or bacteria. Now, my opinion is if there's yeast or bacteria in the scalp, which, which, which is not uncommon, you know, yeast can take up residence in the follicles, and that is a huge contributor to alopecia. Uh, Additionally, you know, there's various types of pathogenic bacteria that can reside in the gut and become systemic and also take up residence in the hair follicles. There's one particular bacteria called P. acnes, which is, you know, a similar 
um, bacterium to what causes acne, you know, acnes, acne. Um, so in my practice, we're looking at what's going on in the gut. We're measuring what's going on patho- you know, from a pathogenic standpoint in the gut insofar as yeast, parasites, protozoa, um, bacteria. Because if you treat the gut, in my opinion, you're kind of treating the whole body. So instead of, as you, you used the word reductionist, instead of focusing on the follicles, you know, I always say reversing alopecia is an inside job, right? We want to look at the gut. We want to look at hormones. And I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, you know, there's nothing that can be done topically to reduce some of that inflammation or to reduce, you know, yeast or bacteria that's taken up residence in the follicles. There absolutely is. There's things that you can do topically to help calm down some of that inflammation. But you want to treat things from the inside at the same time you want to treat things internally so that you're not constantly chasing your tail and constantly having to treat the scalp, treat the scalp, treat the scalp. Let's, let's get at root cause and then, you know, that bacteria or that yeast or whatever pathogen it is, is no longer free floating in the body and, and inflaming your follicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Well, I think that's that's a really good overview and gut health, you know, with having less dysbiosis, um, your immune system generally is uh, less confused and is less likely to trick, you know, trigger into autoimmunity. So that's great that and I want to kind of circle back to how you go about learning about the gut in just a second. So maybe we could go down the hormone path a little bit. Um, what what are the hormones you think about when it comes to hair loss? Thyroid, cortisol, metabolized cortisol, estrogen and the estrogen metabolites, prolactin, insulin, and the androgens, DHEA, testosterone and those metabolites and then there's also an enzyme related to those hormones called the 5 alpha well 5 alpha or 5 beta <laughs> there's an androgenic hormone metabolite and people are either on the 5 alpha or the 5 beta side if you're on the 5 beta side of those androgenic um, metabolites you very well could be converting testosterone into DHT which is nicknamed the hair muncher it's a silly name but you know, a lot of people have heard of DHT related to, um, you know, men's prostate health and, you know, male pattern baldness. But women can also be high in DHT. And if they are dysglycemic, if they're on that blood sugar bungee cord, they are more sensitive to DHT. This is where it gets a little tricky because you can measure DHT. It could be normal. It could be within the normal limits. But if someone's dysglycemic and having a hard time balancing their blood sugar, they will be more sensitive to that DHT. That's that's really interesting, and you know, so I love how you explain the hormones in such a broad way. Like the all the different hormones that you're including in this discussion um, is very comprehensive. I I would I think for for people. Um, are most familiar with how androgens affect hair growth. Um, let's go into cortisol because uh, you know, I think people can relate to having hair fall when they're um, under a lot of stress. Um, maybe we can go into more about cortisol's impact on the 
hair growth or hair um, health? Yes, this is a biggie. And I will start by saying that one of the frustrations I have with conventional medicine, and I'm not here to speak disparagingly about you know doctors or medical providers at all, but having done this for a number of years, I find that you know dermatologists, endocrinologists, even primary care physicians will say, oh, you're just stressed. You're just stressed. Go, go you know, mitigate your stress, find ways to tame your stress. Well, that can be really stressful for people to hear that. Now, stress is definitely, you know, stress and the, you know, ensuing cortisol production. Yes, that can be a big trigger for hair loss, and I can explain more about why that's actually, you know, why that's true. But to tell somebody, oh, it's just stress, go manage your stress, is, is greatly dismissive. It, it only scratches the surface of why that's true, and also it scratches the surface of why someone's losing their hair in the first place. So the testing that we do with our clients, we measure cortisol as well as metabolized cortisol. How is somebody using their cortisol? So, you know, someone could be high cortisol, which is can be problematic, but they could also be, someone else could be low cortisol, but be a really high cortisol metabolizer, which means that their body is doing a really, really good job of using the cortisol that they are making. So you can't just look at the cortisol. You have to look at how somebody's using it. Now, the other thing about cortisol and hair loss is that in 50% of the alopecia community, they have an extra cortisol receptor site in their hair follicles. This is a huge aha for people. I don't know of any test for it. I don't think there's a way to measure cortisol in the follicles. Um, but 50% is a pretty substantive percentage. And, you know, we're working on adrenal health and cortisol regulation with our clients anyway, right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're addressing that hormone anyway because it impacts the lining of the gut wall. It impacts how the thyroid works. It impacts how we, you know, regulate our, our moods and emotions. It's, you know, it's called the shapeshifter. It, it plays many roles. It's a life-saving hormone. It's not like we don't want to be making any of it. We just want to be making the right amounts at the right time. And we want to know how someone's metabolizing it. So again, in 50%, of the alopecia community, they have this extra adrenal cortisol receptor site in their follicles, which can cause inflammation. So one of the ways to reduce inflammation in the hair follicles is to nourish and support the adrenals. Nourish and support the adrenals. This is so foundational. It, it's, it's utterly foundational to everything that we do, including clearing an infection. You want some semblance of adrenal you know, we're not looking for perfection, but we want some semblance of adrenal stability to even be able to clear an infection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, along with the nourishing the adrenals, um, the blood sugar piece plays a big role in that, doesn't it? Huge, huge piece. I would even go so far as to say is you know, this is a bold statement, but if someone's dysglycemic, you know, having a hard time balancing their blood sugar, possibly, you know, insulin resistant or pre-diabetic, I would say it's impossible to reside in a place of adrenal health if, if they've got blood sugar dysregulation. It's, it's that important. There's that tight of a relationship 
between those two systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that um, you look at all these these aspects and these um, diagnostic markers or functional labs to help make these decisions. And you've come up with something called the Master Alopecia Lab Guide. And uh, I'd love to hear about that and um, maybe just kind of share what people, when they do work with that guide, what, what they might learn. Yeah, so it's broken down by category, such as you know inflammatory markers, hormones, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not a ginormous guide. And, and frankly, several of the markers on this guide are pretty standard testing anyway. You know, they're things that you could get, you know, as part of a physical or, um, you know, at a, at a, you know, in a standard lab panel. For example, I like to know where someone's liver enzymes are, you know, ALT, AST, which is a very common test. Um, some of the inflammatory markers that I like to see are like homocysteine, high sensitivity CRP, which is C-reactive protein. Um, an anti-nuclear antibody is always good to have. Now, I, I there's a caveat there, which is, you know, an, an anti-nuclear antibody is not always reliable. It's not uncommon to get a false negative. And there's a unique thing about alopecia, which is, um, if someone has alopecia and doesn't have other forms of autoimmunity, sometimes the body is making localized antibodies, meaning they're localized to the hair follicles. Whereas, like with lupus, I've read in the medical literature that you know if someone has lupus, 95 plus percent of the time their ANA is going to be positive because it is it is such a systemic autoimmune condition. So anti-nuclear antibody, you know. I mean, if somebody has patchy hair loss, you know, we're pretty much going to assume that there's some autoimmunity going on. Nonetheless, I think that anti-nuclear antibody test is good to have. Um, iron and ferritin, super important. And, and, you know, a lot of, for whatever reason, a lot of doctors are hesitant to run a ferritin test. They'll say, oh, no, you just need to test your iron. But we want to look at those two markers together. Um so speaking of blood sugar and a very basic panel of testing which is critically important is you know a blood sugar panel fasting glucose hemoglobin a1c and fasting insulin this is super important too so so oftentimes people will only have a fasting glucose sometimes they'll have a fasting glucose and a hemoglobin a1c but a third really important marker is fasting insulin um I like to look at a fecal panel. You know, we offer a full fecal panel with all of our clients and all of our students. They, 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 we do a fecal panel to look at not only, you know, is there any pathogenic bacteria, but also are there healthy levels of the good stuff, right? The good flora, the good bacteria, because it's one thing to have some pathogenic bacteria, which, you know, most people have some level of pathogenic bacteria. It may not be, you know, in the red zone, but most people have some level of pathogenic bacteria, but do we have enough of the healthy stuff to kind of override the pathogenic bacteria? So we're looking at both of those things. Um, I like to see a CBC, you know, a complete blood count, which is a very standard test. Um, and then a full thyroid panel, which 
sometimes that's not that easy to get either. A lot of doctors will just run a TSH and say that's all you need. TSH, you know, it's not even a thyroid hormone, it's a pituitary hormone. And it does give us some information. We don't want TSH to be elevated, but we always want to look at TSH in the context of free T3, free T4, and then the two thyroid antibodies, thyroid peroxidase and thyroglobulin antibodies, right, to see if, you know, this person has Hashimoto's. So those are a few of the tests that I love to see. And then the full spectrum of hormones that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's great. And um, I would love to move into just some quick kind of questions with the time we have have left and just to kind of hear your, your response, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so could you share one of one of your favorite success stories yes okay so there was a boy in australia i was working you know very closely with his mom and um he had a lot going on he was you know he was pretty young i think gosh at the time we started working together i think he was eight or nine years old and his mom was just bound and determined for this boy to get his hair back. I mean, she was just so invested and, you know, we really left no stone unturned and nothing was happening for quite a while. Um, and, you know, she was a little bit discouraged, but not super discouraged. And I always encourage my clients and students to work with a functional or integrative, you know, medical provider. I am not all things to everybody. I, I, I am not, and I, you know, I encourage everyone I work with to find a provider like you <laughs> who's open-minded and who can look at something like alopecia as a, as a complex system versus, oh, we're going to run this lab and that lab, and oh, these are fine, so, you know, go manage your stress. So um, she, towards the end of our time together, they did end up finding a couple of infections that I had actually suspected kind of early on in our time together. And they worked with the functional medicine doctor to do a medically supervised, you know, like clearing of these infections. He had no hair. He started with Universalis and he got all of his hair back. Like it just started growing and his eyelashes and eyebrows came in. And wow. his doctor said, you know, had you not done this foundational work, of, you know, sleuthing out the food sensitivities and, you know, reducing some of his stress and, you know, getting his cortisol down and, you know, some of the things that she and I had worked on together, he's like, you know, the clearing of these infections, while it would have been beneficial, certainly, um, you know, he wouldn't have seen progress this quickly. There's another quick story I'll tell you, which is, um, This is also a child. I mean, I've worked with a lot of it. I've, I've worked mostly with adults, but I, you know, my, I kind of have a heart for these kids who have who have alopecia. And there's another girl mm-hmm. who also had a lot going on. You know, a lot of fatigue. She was sleeping a lot. You know, she was a sick girl, and also had a mother who was just bound and determined to help her daughter get her hair back. And early on in our relationship, I had suspected um, mercury toxicity based on some of her symptoms. And I shared that, you know, with her mom and said, you know, I think, 
I suspect that there's some mercury toxicity going on. Now, her gut was messed up. We do know that heavy metals can mess up the gut. So, you know, how much of this was downstream and how much of it was upstream, I'm not sure. But um, they didn't latch on to that metals piece. And I don't judge them or blame them. I mean, they were doing a lot. They were completely overhauling how the whole family ate. They were doing a bunch of testing. You know, they were doing a lot. And it's not that she just let the metals piece of information go in one ear and out the other. She was just taking things in a very measured way. And towards the end of the program, her hair started to grow back without the heavy metals testing or any treatment. And I thought, oh, okay, well, this is awesome. You know, maybe metals are not part of the picture. So she grew most of her hair back. She had a little pixie cut and um, everybody was so happy. And then boom, within a month, she lost all of it again. And I said to her mom, go get her tested for heavy metals. Please go get her tested for heavy metals. And they did, and her mercury was so high, it was off the charts. They couldn't even measure it. So they did a medically supervised heavy metals detox for this child, and all of her hair regrew within, like, I mean, she had a pixie cut again within a matter of, you know, like four or five months. So that's one of my favorite stories, too. Wow, I love it. So it's it's really interesting that some of your favorite stories that or success stories all pointed to the immune system and its involvement yeah. with with this and that's kind of how you started this conversation um, how that's sort of like the overarching priority which is you know I think really a advanced view of alopecia so that's that's awesome. Um, and I do want to point out that uh, a lot of people do get biopsies to confirm diagnosis. So they are, you know, we are at, at getting advanced with like tissue biopsies of the scalp to um, confirm the alopecia. And whether that's necessary or not, I, that's up between the patient and the provider, but it is out there. Um, the One of the questions I'd love to hear is if you were on, let's say, some type of trip and you didn't have your blueberries and your health foods and your, you know, everything that you would kind of do in your normal day-to-day -day life to stay healthy. Um, and you could only bring one thing to prevent um, uh, alopecia flare. What would it be? If I could bring one supplement or one like food? What, one, whatever. One, whatever. Black seed oil. It could be. Black seed oil. Black seed oil. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well... You and I could probably talk another hour about mast cells. Um, it sounds like right. you're savvy about that. A lot of providers don't know about mast cell degranulation, much less how it impacts hair follicle health. But black seed oil really is kind of a miracle supplement. And the way that I found out about it was because it's a mast cell stabilizer. It's also an antihistamine. So for your listeners who are unfamiliar with mast cells, they're these master regulators in the body. They, they, they regulate several things, but when it comes to alopecia specifically, the most important thing is histamines and people who have um, a history of a lot of allergies often have degranulated mast cells, which can cause a tremendous amount of hair loss. It can cause people to just dump hair. And I'm not saying that everybody who has allergies has alopecia. But this is often like the last frontier, right? This is, you know, we're looking at the immune system. We're looking at the gut. We're looking at hormones. We're looking at 
nutrient status. We're looking at all these things, but we can never sidestep the role of, does this person have degranulated mast cells? Now, a lot of people will say, well, I don't have allergies. I don't sneeze, you know, I don't have seasonal allergies. I don't, you know, sneeze and have post-nasal drip in the springtime, or I don't react to ragweed in the fall. But that's the H1 response, right? A lot of people can have what's called the H2 response, which is a system-wide mast cell degranulation, mast cell you know, activation disorder syndrome that may not cause an H1 response. You may not have the sneezing and the itchy, watery eyes and all that. You may be having an H2 response, and one of the primary symptoms of that is alopecia. Black seed oil is an antihistamine. It, it, it stabilizes mast cells. It's anti-cancer. It promotes hair growth. Uh, it's an anti-inflammatory. Uh, and it supports thyroid hormone production. I mean, I could go on and on about how amazing this stuff is. And um, it, yeah. it's, um, I, it's a miracle supplement. It's not yeah, a cure-all. I like it as well. Yeah, I like it as well. And for my listeners, I don't have any affiliation with this brand, but um, I like the Gaia black seed oil. You got to make sure you get quality brands. Um, Absolutely. And Gaia Herbs makes a really wonderful phyto cap um, of black seed oil. Um, so that's that's really awesome. I'm glad you brought that up. And final question: What do you think about some of these? Uh, latest and greatest treatments for alopecia, such as like um, the red light therapy um, helmet. Um, I have some patients that use that. Uh, also, you know, things like um, micro microderm rollers yeah. and uh, just just a few kind of quick comments on those things. Because in this, in my listeners are pretty tech savvy. Um, also, my patients that you know living in the Seattle area are always looking for like the latest and greatest. Yeah, they can be super helpful if the root causes have been addressed, right? So, in my work with my clients and students, we talk about external follicle stimulation, kind of you know towards the end of the program or the you know the end of our the end of the course or whatever. Um, you know, there's really good science on red light therapy. There's really good science on, you know, needling or, you know, the, there's various ways to needle, right? You can needle with a stick or you can needle with a roller or you can needle with what's called a derma stamp. You can stamp the needles onto the scalp, which can instigate growth, right? It can, it can, it, it, they provide, the needles in particular provide these little micro injuries underneath the surface of the scalp. And then you have all this, you know, all these red blood cells and all this energy that comes in to heal those little micro injuries and it can actually instigate growth. But if the causes of the inflammation that are in the follicles aren't addressed, you know, it's kind of like a 50 story elevator going up to the 20th floor. You might get a little bit of, you know, growth or, you know, you might see some improvement, but then that hair might fall out again, or you might see no improvement. So you online, you'll see a lot of complaints about those types of strategies, like oh, the needling didn't work, or the essential oils didn't work, or the red light therapy didn't work. Well, it works best <laughs> when the root causes of the alopecia have been uncovered and dealt with first. And then you come in towards the end with some of those external follicle stimulation strategies and it's amazing what can happen. That's awesome. Yeah, I love how you put that because, um, you know, so much, so many times 
you hear that something didn't work and it was really actually it didn't work because it wasn't used at the right time right. and um, was it used was was it um, used after you like you said foundational work um, needed to be done first yeah so that's great well you Jill you are a wealth of information and um, I can really see how you have helped a lot of people I think a lot of people uh, listening to this can see that as well and you know, based on your wisdom and I know it's probably not as easy as you make it sound after doing something so as long as you've done it you probably have had your share of um, triumphs and also really tough situations and cases so I thank you for sticking it out for everybody and continuing to learn and grow and for sharing your information thank you so much thank you for having me this has been a great conversation you're welcome and uh, we will of course, post links to your um, healthful elements, um, social media, uh, so people can track you down. I know you do a lot of great Instagram stuff and Facebook stuff, and um, your course um, will post information to that. Um, any parting words that you'd like to share with us before we wrap up? Um, first, I would say thank you for sharing You know my web address. You can also go to reversingalopecia.com. Um, for, for more information on my approach. But, um, you know, I guess my parting words would be, I know it's easy to get discouraged because going back to the beginning of this conversation, it can be such an emotionally devastating condition and people tend to freeze up oftentimes, like, oh my gosh, what's happening? I'm losing my hair at a very rapid rate and they go into, you know, there's fight, flight or freeze (laughs) a lot of people freeze up and they're like oh well I guess this is my fate or you know I don't really know how to approach this and it is doable it does take work and I always tell people I don't have a magic bullet I don't have a magic wand you know like this is a process and it even says in the medical literature that in the best of circumstances in the very best of circumstances you won't see improvement for about three or four months Right, So we're working during those three or four months to uncover root causes and reduce the inflammation to optimize that you know, best case scenario. But it is a, it is a process and it, it's, it's life changing. It, is, it will transform your life. It'll transform your relationship with food and, you know, but it's, it's definitely a process and we love working with people who are in it for the long haul. Excellent. Well, Jill, uh, we'll be kind of tracking your progress and uh, continuing to learn from you. And thank you again for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. Forward the, the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again... Much appreciation for you being here with me.